0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I'm going to do verses 1 through 11. I've entitled this section, The Churches of Ephesus and Smyrna. So we're now into the section of Revelation in which John sends his messages to the seven churches. Our context is this, in chapter 1, first eight verses were a nice prologue to the book in which John or which Jesus announced to John, and John announces to us that Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. And then there's a description of Jesus, a very messianic, or uh, apocalyptic vision of Jesus that John had. And so now we are into chapter 2, because Jesus said he had seven stars in his head. Those were the seven angels of the seven churches. He was walking around in the middle of seven lampstands. Those seven lampstands were the light of the world, the church, the seven churches of Ephesus, namely and he's sending messages. I say angels. I'm taking the position that the angels are messengers he's sending to the seven churches. And now here is what was said to the seven churches. Here are those messages. We're only going to we're only going to do two churches today: Ephesus and Smyrna. Starting with verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Of course, that one is Jesus. Chapter one. He holds seven stars in his hands. That seven stars was a symbol of imperial authority in the Roman Empire, so it was a symbol of authority. Jesus has authority in his right hand, has authority in his right hand. That is the position of authority on the right side of the king. That's where the prime minister sat, his right hand. This is authority, authority, authority. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is in the middle of his churches, because the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Now let's look at the first church, Ephesus. This was the most important political and commercial city in Asia Minor. It's very famous, if anybody's read any ancient history. It's a huge city, about a quarter of a million people living there, and that's a lot for the ancient world. It was also an an important cultural center. There was lots of art there, science, witchcraft, idolatry, gladiators, a gymnasium, public baths, a public library, public brothel. The library's still there, pieces of it. And the stone's real nice to go see. Ephesus is a great place to go see for on, as a tourist thing. As far as the religion there, there was a temple to Artemis, the famous temple to Diana, Artemis. Artemis is Greek, Diana is Roman. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now this temple is mentioned over and over again in ancient history. If you ever read any ancient history, it just shows up all the time. I was on a trip to Ephesus. And I asked the tour guide, well, we just saw Ephesus, that's real nice. Where is the famous temple to Diana? And she said, oh, in the 19th century, some rich businessman decided he wanted to buy the remains of that temple. So they came here, took all the stones, packed them up, put them by the railroad track. And somehow his financing fell through and he didn't pick up the stones. So now it's just a, a small pile of stones somewhere. And she pointed somewhere in the distance and I didn't get to see the famous temple of Diana. Well, I thought, well, how the mighty fallen, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and now you're just a pile of neglected rocks by a railroad track. Well, not only was there a famous pagan center of worship there, there was also a lot of Jewish occultism and magical arts there. It was a hotbed of such. Let me read to you the account that Paul had on his, I believe that was his second journey. At the end of his second journey, when he went to Ephesus, Acts 19, 13 through 15, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth, And there were seven sons of one Sceva, or Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? All right, well, there were some Jews practicing exorcism, so there you have sort of I don't know if you'd call that occult or magical. It's kind of hard to say. They were casting out demons. But we go to verses 17 and 19, the same chapter of Acts 19. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus And fear, fell on them all, and all the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now here's what we know about all the, the occultism. Verse 18 in Acts 19. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, many of them also which Jews, curious arts, as black arts, demonic arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Folks, that's a a lot of garbage going on. A lot of those were Jews. There were some Greeks, too, involved in all that. Apostate Judaism was accommodating itself to numerous pagan practices. Apostate Judaism was developing early strains of what later became known as Gnosticism. There was the cult wisdom, rabbinical lore, mystery, mystery religion, asceticism, licentiousness, all the typical stuff that went into this ancient her- heresy. So that's what Ephesus was. It was a booming commercial city with a lot of religious stuff going on. We go to verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 2. Jesus says to John, who says to the messenger, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. So here's the good news first. The Ephesians worked hard their deeds and toil and perseverance. And this is what they're really noted for, their orthodoxy. They could not tolerate evil men. False apostles, you put them to the test, and I'm, I'm assuming that's the doctrinal test of First John that John talked about and they are not apostles. You found them to be false. They're false apostles, so that's good. You have perseverance and endured for my name's sake, and I'm sure that John is referring to enduring the false teachers and false apostles. You've not grown weary. I'm assuming he's meaning you haven't grown weary in fighting these creeps. Of all of Paul's letters to the churches, only the Ephesians, only in the letter to the Ephesians is there no mention of a doctrinal issue that needed to be fixed. The Ephesians were willing to take a stand for orthodoxy no matter the cost. They were the fighting fundies of the seven churches. Thyatira was the opposite. They were the liberals, the compromising liberals, the wussy-pussy liberals of the, of the seven churches. You will find those two extremes in Christianity, people who want to compromise everything and people who don't want to compromise even the little slightest irrelevant thing. The Ephesians were not afraid of church discipline and excommunication, Ignatius 40 years later said of them. Ignatius, of course, is the famous early church father, Ignatius of Antioch. You all live according to the truth, and no heresy has a home among you. I have learned that certain persons passed through you, bringing evil doctrine, and you did not allow them to sow seeds among you, for you stopped up your ears. Well, that's admirable. Anytime you see a heretic, just look at him, stare at him, and stick your fingers in your ears. You're not going to listen to any BS. Don't listen to it. We we'll Go to verse 4. Here's the bad news. Jesus says through John and the messenger that's going to take this to Ephesus, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Well, who was the Ephesians' first love? Well, that's Jesus. That's who they loved at first. So that shows that you can love truths about Jesus, but you don't love Jesus personally or Jesus' brethren personally. That is a sad situation to get in. I know of some people that have gotten into that situation. I won't mention any names. This is sensitive. But you can't do that, folks. You can't just preach good doctrine without loving people. Now, note that concern for orthodoxy doesn't necessarily mean lack of love for Christ of the brothers. The two are absolutely compatible. You can have good doctrine and you love your brothers. In fact, a part of good doctrine is loving your brothers. Read First John, the whole book, loving your brothers. This is a perversion of orthodoxy when you speak the truth with no love. And apparently the Ephesians were guilty of this. Verse 5, Revelation 2, Jesus continues, Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Now you see, Jesus is not interested in wiping out the church at Ephesus. He wants them to repent. Just like most of the time you have a kid when he does something you don't like, you don't want to destroy the kid, you want the kid to repent. Do the deeds you did at first. There's nothing wrong with doing good works, folks. And if you don't, or else, I am coming to you. Kind of like in that phrase that people use all the time, you're having a come-to-Jesus meeting. (laughs) This is something that's going to be a little unpleasant. Jesus is going to to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with the Ephesians. I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. I know this is a coming in judgment. It's not the personal coming at the end of history, in case anybody thought of that. It's obvious because he says, well, it's obvious because the lampstand of Ephesus was removed out of its place long before 2,000 years plus at the end of time. Ephesus is now a ancient city. It's a pile of rocks, actually. It's a tourist trap in the middle of a Muslim country. It's gone. The Ephesian church is gone. Its lampstand has been removed long before the end of history. So this coming is a coming in judgment near the time that John wrote. Now, the King James has coming quickly. I'm coming quickly to you. The Greek text does not have quickly. I don't know why. King Jimmy put that in there. I'm coming to you, Jesus says. And Ephesians, I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place. And that means its influence at least will be taken out of the way. And in fact, it probably means more than that. The church will cease to be a church. And it's interesting as Bruce Gore points out that Ephesus was deserted after malaria outbreak about 40 years later. So not only was the church removed, the whole city was removed because of malaria. I don't know if that's what Jesus was talking about, but... Apparently, they didn't repent because the lampstand is gone, gone, gone. Gone with the wind. Ain't never coming back again. Probably. Revelation 2.6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Back to some good news for the Ephesians. They fought the Nicolaitans. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, nobody knows exactly who they were. I'm going to give you several opinions, speculations. Irenaeus, the famous early church father operating out of Lyon. I think he was... He was in the early third century. He was, Irenaeus says that Nicolaus, uh, Nicholas, I should say, was a follower. The Nicolaitans were followers of this Nic- Nicholas who had apostatized. And in fact, he was one of the seven so called deacons in Jerusalem in Acts 6 5 that were chosen to serve the Hellenistic Jews after Pentecost. And Nicholas is supposed to have apostatized. And then become involved in unrestrained indulgence and adultery, and saying that those were perfectly okay. Well, that's a great speculation. I have no idea to know whether it's true or not. John Gill says, he, John Gill's got an even better story. He says that some are saying that Nicholas had a beautiful wife. Somebody allegedly made eyes at her. Nicholas charged, was charged with being jealous of this guy. So, to clear himself of the charge, he offered his wife in marriage to any taker come take her. I don't want her. I'm not jealous. See here, I can let anybody have her. You think she's beautiful? Come get her. And so then Nicholas was wrongly interpreted by the Nicolaitans to say that Nicholas was saying it's okay to have a community of wives, which he really wasn't, according to the story. He was just saying, you can have my wife. But the story got perverted. Well, that's very interesting. There's I don't know. How do you prove that? Nobody can prove it. Well, here's what the great Puritan theologian or the great Calvinist theologian Lightfoot at the Westminster Confession he was. He says that the Hebrew Nicola means let us eat. And so the Nicolaitans were those who encouraged people to eat food offered to idols. Another option that you see a lot is that Nicolaitans were conquerors of the laity. The Greek word from which nico comes from is stands for conquer and then laity stands for the laity. Conqueror of the laity. So allegedly these Nicolaitans were power grabbers who took control over churches. Now, of course, it could be a combination of these. They could be people who led people who led the church to eat food, offered idols, and they tried to take over the church. They could be, be both. Or they could be followers, people who in, were involved in unrestrained indulgence and adultery and saying that was okay. Who knows? They're just some bad guys. And, of course, the Orthodox Ephesians aren't going to put up with that nonsense. So they got a kudo from the Lord because of that. Now, David Chilton has got some interesting speculation about who these Nicolaitans were. He said that whoever they were, they were identical to the Balaamites of Pergamum. Now, that's going to be in our next audio, verse 14, chapter 2. And then Chilton says that the Nicolaitans were also similar to the Jezebel faction at Thyatira in verse 20, chapter 2, also in, next, in the next audio. Now, Chilton makes an interesting point that Balaam means conquer the people just like Nicolaitans means conquer the people. I guess Balaam being in Hebrew and Nicolaitans in Greek, I think. So, Chilton goes on to say that the Nicolaitans and Balaam both commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, let's look at the Nicolaitans at Pergamum, Revelation 2, 14 and 15. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, now you recall the story, Israel's trying to go up through Moab. Balak, the king of Moab, doesn't like all these scadzillion Hebrews coming up through his land. And so he says, we've got to curse them. I know a good prophet up there in the north, named, in Syria somewhere, named Balaam. I'm going to get him down here and I'm, I'm going to pay him. And he's going to curse the Israelites. And, and of course, what ba- what Balak wanted Balaam to do is to get the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, in other words, to seduce them away from that love of Yahweh. And to commit fornication. You remember, they did that. They went in there with all those sexy Moabite women. I guess they were sexy. Because the Israelites were dumb enough to get into their tents and have sex with them. And remember, Phinehas came up there with a spear and started spearing them right in fragante delicto. You end up with a spear through your back. It's a great story. Well, what's that got to do with the Nicolaitans? Balaam, verse 15, Revelation 2. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Then ASB says, in the same way you've got people that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, in the same way as Balaam, who taught Balak to seduce the Israelites into eating meat sacrificed to idols, and who seduced the Israelites into committing fornication, in the same way the Nicolaitans do that. So, I think we can safely connect Nicolaitans up with Eating meat sacrificed idols and committing fornication, which is exactly what the Jezebel faction at Thyatira did in verse twenty, Revelation two. Now the Nicolaitans aren't mentioned in this passage, but listen to this. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So there's the same thing temptations to idolatry and temptations to sexual immorality. So Jezebel is not named as a Nicolaitan, but she's acting like one. So I think that Nicolaitans—if I had to bet my life on it—I would say these Nicolaitans were people who seduced the good Christians to immorality and idolatry, and then who tried to take over the church with their power-mad political plays. At any rate, that's the type of people that needs to be, need to be hated. Oh, God doesn't hate people. Jesus doesn't hate people. Revelation two six. I also hate these Nicolaitans? Jesus said it. I hate them. Well, actually, he says he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I guess you need to make the distinction between the sinner and the sin, do we not? So he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's an interesting point. You know, we should always love the sinner, but hate their sin. We go to verse 7, Revelation 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, this assumes that some people aren't going to be listening to what John says or what Jesus said. Some things never change. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, all of the seven messages to the church were different, but there was a common theme. Overcome. The one who overcomes is the Greek to nikonti, which is a preposition, dative, uh, participle, to those who are overcoming. Now, to those who are in the process of overcoming, and it's translated here to him who overcomes. It comes from the Greek word nikaio, which is the same root as the Nicolaitans. Nikaio, Nicolaitans, conquerors of the laity. So the church is to overcome. The church is to overcome those who are trying to overcome her. And I I suppose that Jesus is referring to overcoming the false teachers that were coming into Ephesus. If you do that, if you overcome, Jesus says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is one of the many references to the Old Testament. The tree of life, of course, is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. and The paradise of God is the Garden of Eden, and this is a symbol of life. And of course, life is Jesus himself. You overcome, you will, you will eat of Jesus. If you will, you'll have Jesus in union with you. Israel Barnes says the phrase, quote, the tree of life, unquote, refers undoubtedly to the language used respecting the Garden of Eden. Where the tree of life is spoken of as what was adapted to make the life of man perpetual. So in other words, if you overcome, you're going to live forever. The tree of life, that means the tree of eternal life. You're going to live forever. But you can't be seduced by these people. In the Old Testament, there was a tree of life in paradise, but Adam destroyed that. He destroyed paradise, but Jesus restores paradise. This is now in the church. The church is actually the living fulfillment of that type. Well, I guess the ultimate fulfillment will be heaven the kingdom of God in its final state, but the church is now the kingdom of God in its conquering state as it prepares for the end when we are going to be in our completely fulfilled state. And in the midst of this, Jesus is in our midst. He's our tree of life and he's overcoming. Notice this overcoming is at the time John was writing, but he overcomes all the way throughout church history to the end of time too. And again, this is one of the themes, one of the three themes of the book of Revelation, overcoming. One theme was you got the Old Jerusalem is destroyed, the New Jerusalem is established. The Old Jerusalem being the apostate rabbinic kingdom that killed Jesus. The second theme is there are two persecuting entities of of the church. That would be the Roman Empire and the Old Jerusalem. And the third theme is that the church must overcome so that it can establish the kingdom of God on earth through these early persecutions by the two two persecuting entities, Rome and apostate Judaism. We go to verse 8, Revelation 2. We're finished with Ephesus now. Let's look at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. on Jesus is identifying himself. He was dead and has come to life. He refers to his death and resurrection. A nice thing to say when you're talking about overcoming. He's also called the first and the last. Now this is first and the last is the name of God. It comes from Isaiah, which shows that Jesus is referring to himself as God. was not shy about that because he was God. Isaiah 44, 6. Here are the two scriptures in Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. There's nobody before me. There's nobody after me. I'm all there is, folks. Isaiah forty eight twelve. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. God is Lord and determiner of history. So don't worry about all the persecutions and uproars that are coming here and the great apostasy and the great tribulation and the run up to 870. seventy. Don't worry about it. I'm the first and the last. I got it all under control. Let's talk about Smyrna a little bit. This is the second church of the seven. This I'll describe the church a little bit, and then I'll describe the city and its population. Here's a description of the church, one of the few churches of the seven that gets only praise and no criticism. I'm not sure what the other church was yet. It'll come to me when we get there, I guess. But Smyrna was they was they were the good boys. They were facing persecution, hardship and poverty. The city is described, maybe described this way, the people were strongly devoted to the emperor cult, devoted to worshipping the Roman emperor. There was a large population of Jews hostile to Christianity. They didn't worship the emperor, of course, but they didn't like Jesus. Homer was allegedly born there in Smyrna, and Christians are there to this day, which is kind of interesting in the middle of Muslim land. Now, I said that God in Isaiah was called the first and the last, and Jesus is referring that to himself here in verse 8, but he also in verse chapter 22, verse 13, does the same thing. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. There ain't nothing before and nothing afterwards. Jesus is all in all, just like God. Jesus is God. Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, Jesus continues to tell John to write, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Tribulation, probably because they were being persecuted by the Jews and those who worship the Roman emperor. And your poverty, that means their financial poverty. Now here's some options as to how they were poor. They could have been Their property could have been vandalized by their opponents. They could have been economically boycotted because of their opposition to the Roman emperor worship. Or the apostate Jews could have said, we're not going to do business with you because you are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Could have been that... They actually had their property stolen from them in the legal system in Smyrna. I don't know, but for some reason they were poor, financially poor. Uh, are you listening, Joel Osteen? That's, and are you listening, Kenneth Copeland, in your twenty three million dollar mansions? Who would you rather imitate? Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, or the church at Smyrna? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and of course the richest here is talking about spiritually rich. Now, isn't it interesting how, Often, financial poverty is associated with spiritual wealth, and vice versa. Spiritual poverty is associated with financial wealth. Rich people, a lot of times, forget their first love. It's not necessary, of course, but it happens often. And I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, and you're making a lot of money, I'm more power to you. But you better be careful. You have to be careful, because it can disappear in a minute. Now, notice that John, or Jesus, actually, Calls the Jews of Smyrna a synagogue of Satan, and that's some serious language. This is just reflective of the first-century Jews who hated the church, hated Jesus, hated his apostles, prophesied about Jesus in Matthew 24, all of it. Discourse. They they are a synagogue of Satan. There's a Jewish term, synagogue, but instead of people loving Yahweh in that synagogue, they are worshiping Satan. They are outwardly Jews, but they are not really, not spiritual Jews. This reminds us of other scriptures that Paul wrote, Philippians 3, 2. Beware of the false circumcision. There are people who are acting like they're Jews, but they're not really. How about Romans 9, 6, second half of the verse? Not all who were descended from Israel are Israel. So there's some fake Jews out there, folks. Synagogue of Satan. Now, the early Christian church is rife with examples of satanic faults witnessed by the Jews against the church. So let's look at some of this Jewish opposition. And all of this opposition, by the way, is going to disappear in AD 70 when the mother church in Jerusalem gets wiped out by the Romans. But these verses I'm going to read to you are before AD 70, and they are persecuting the church, just like Jesus predicted. They're going to chase you from synagogue to synagogue. Remember he said that? Acts 6, 9 through 14. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. And... Cyrenians, that's in North Africa, Alexandrians, that's in North Africa, and of them of Cilicia, southern Asia Minor there where Paul was from, Tarsus, and of Asia, that's all around Ephesus in that area, and along the western coast of, of Asia Minor. So all of these people from all over the empire, they're in Jerusalem and they're disputing with Stephen, the first martyr, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they suborned the men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Absolute lie. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and came upon him, and called him, and brought him to the council, as the Sanhedrin, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Well, you know the end of that story. Stephen was killed. That's persecution from the Jews, from the synagogue of Satan. Acts 13, 6 and 10. And when they had gone through the isle, this the isle of Cyprus, under Paphos, that's on the western end of the island, they found a certain sorcerer, Elamus, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. So here's a Jewish false prophet. Paul said to him, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, you child of the devil, You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? So there's a member of the synagogue of Satan named Bargesus on Paphos, on Cyprus. It's the first journey. We go now to Acts 14, 2 through through 5. We're still on the first journey now. But the unbelieving Jews at Iconium, this is in, uh, in the central part of the Anatolian province, right on the first journey. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil, affected against the brethren. And when they were in assault, made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. So the Jews and the leaders of the Jews tried to stone Paul and Barnabas. Unbelieving Jews this is at Iconium. Acts 17:5 through 8. Now this is on the second journey. And when Silas and Timotheus, Timothy, were come from Macedonia... Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews. Well, let me back up here. I skipped one. Acts 17, 5 through 8. This is at Thessalonica. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the base sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason. That's where Paul was staying and brought them to bring them out to the people. That was Paul and Silas. So the Jews stirred up a crowd against the apostles in Thessalonica. They were of the synagogue of Satan. Acts 18, verses 5, 6, and 12. And this is still, this is when Paul on the second missionary journey stayed for a couple of years there. Excuse me, for 18 months, a year and a half. Acts 18, verses 5, 6, and 12. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed... And blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, "Your blood be upon your own heads; I am clean from henceforth. I will go unto the Gentiles. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made an insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. It was the Jews that took Paul before the Roman magistrates, trying to shut him down, trying to put him in jail, trying to violate his rights of free speech. Acts nineteen verses eight and nine Now this is at the end of the second journey, Acts 19, 8, 9, he, he went into the synagogue, this is the synagogue at Ephesus, and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened, excuse the King James English, and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them. So it was the Jews that ran him out of Ephesus. Now on the third journey, well excuse me, this is after the third journey, Paul's return to Jerusalem. Acts twenty one twenty seven. the Jews, which were of Asia, they had apparently followed him all the way from Ephesus maybe, all from Asia, western Turkey. When they saw him in the temple, this is in Jerusalem, they stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. If you read all that story, Paul was lucky he didn't get killed. He was blessed, I should say. And this same persecution of the Jews continued in Acts 24.1. After five days, Ananias the high priest, he's Jewish, of course, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor, that's the Roman governor Felix, against Paul. And if you will read that story... The Jews tried to, they tried to ambush Paul at, on the way to the Sanhedrin and kill him. That failed. Then they tried to ambush him on the way to Caesarea. That failed. Then they tried to testify against him with a lawyer before the Romans at Caesarea. That failed. But they were after him. They were of the synagogue of Satan. Ananias was of the synagogue of Satan. Acts 25, 2-3, and verse 7. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, lying wait in the way to kill him. As I mentioned, they were trying to kill him on the way to Caesarea. So anyway, we have there a whole bunch of evidence of the activities of the synagogue of Satan. And some of this activity was actually at Ephesus. I didn't mention this, Acts 19, 8, 9. It says, And he went into the synagogue at Ephesus and spoke boldly for the space of three months. They were hardened, believed not, spoke evil of the way, and Paul had to leave. And so John mentions that there are Jews there. Who are of the synagogue of Satan. Now we need to make a point here is people get all bent out of shape when you start reading these verses and they say, see, you're anti Semitic. No, you're not anti-Semitic. I mean Paul was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish. It was just that, that wicked generation of Jews that tried to kill Jesus and his apostles. That generation. The blood was on their head when Jesus destroyed Jerusalem. That was the punishment. The Jews today are not any more to be punished for killing Jesus than the Italians are to be punished because their ancestors, the Romans, killed Jesus. They murdered Jesus judicially. We need to be careful about that because of history when Jews are very, very sensitive to the charges of anti-Semitism. We go down to verse 10, Revelation 2. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, Smyrna. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, all of these, this synagogue of Satan, somebody's going to get the Smyrnans. And cast some of you, not all of you, into prison so that you'll be tested. And again, why do some people go to prison and why does God deliver some people so they don't go to prison? You'll have to ask God that because I don't think any human being knows the answer to that. But whether a Smyrna was thrown into prison or not, he was tested because it was his brother or his sister that was thrown into prison. And these people will have tribulation for ten days. Ten days just means a short period of time. I think that's all it means. It doesn't mean literal Literally 10 days, it just means a short period of time. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the crown which is characterized by life. I will give you life as a reward for your victory, your victory of overcoming. You're going to live forever, folks. You're going to live forever. And again, overcoming is one of the main three main themes of Revelation. Let me repeat them to you. The old Jerusalem becomes the new Jerusalem. There are two entities that persecute the church, Rome and the old Jerusalem. And the third theme is the Christians, if they will overcome the persecutions of the old Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, they will receive life. Life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And of course, this implies that some people don't have an ear and some people don't listen, despite the fact that Jesus came in a revelation and gave it to John. But now some people, I don't want to hear what Jesus says. No, be spiritually attuned and listen to what I'm saying. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. There's that theme again of overcoming Not be hurt by the second death, what does that mean? Well, we've got to go through the first and second lives and the first and second deaths, which are in Revelation. The first death is physical death. The second death is spiritual death, eternal separation from God. The first resurrection is spiritual resurrection, you become born again. And the second resurrection is physical resurrection, when your body is raised. So your body dies first and raised last. Well, I can't really say your body dies first. I, I, I didn't scratch that. Now, this becomes important when you're studying Revelation 20. And I'm going to take a post-mill view of that, not a pre-mill view. And so, if you're post-mill or if you're a in other words, if you're a non-pre-mill, this is what you're all going to say. First death is physical death. Second death is spiritual death. First resurrection is spiritual resurrection. And the second resurrection is physical resurrection. Now, what's left unsaid here, well, before I go any further. John says, the overcomers will not be hurt by the second death. That's physical, uh, excuse me, that is spiritual death, separation from God. Of course, if you overcome in Jesus, you're never going to be separated from God, so you won't be hurt by the second death. Now, how do you get privileged enough to be not hurt by the second death? Well, you have to participate in the first resurrection, which is being born again. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's being born again. The second death has no power over them. Physical death has no power over you if you've been born again. You're not going to die, ever. You're going to be resurrected from the dead. Your body will be glorified. These people who enjoy the first resurrection will be priests of God and of Christ. That's referring to Christians. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the church age between the first and second advents. Now, notice that what's not stated here... John, or Jesus, does not promise that the overcomers will not be hurt by the first death. He doesn't say that. Why? Because some of them are going to be killed physically. It's amazing how in the scriptures that there's never a promise that we're not going to get killed. It's not there. It's not here either. But because from God's point of view, that's not a big deal because we're going to live forever. I admit, as a human being, I have a hard time looking at it from that perspective. But that's the way the Bible looks at it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're finished now with Ephesus and Smyrna, first 11 verses of Revelation, of Revelation chapter 2. In our next audio, we'll take up the churches of Thyatira, Pergamum and Thyatira. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.